They both sit in their living rooms in two different areas of Los Angeles, both of whom are trying daily to decipher what drives the human experience. One is armed with questions, the other punchlines. We take a look at the life and times of two men using their creativity to highlight so much of what makes us human. Jay Mendoza is a comedian whose Instagram boasts close to 450,000 fans. Walter Thompson Hernandez is a journalist who is now pivoting full-time to other forms of storytelling. And for this son of a single mother, his journey and lifelong passion for books started, where else, a library. I think for me, like writing really begins with my mom. Um, my mom was in a PhD program in literature at UCLA. And, you know, like single mom raising me in a, in a PhD program at 25, 26, you know, like I was with her every single day, you know, I was there for office hours. I was there in her classes. I was in the library with her, you know, like in the sort of like historical archives, like I was there, you know, for, for all sort of like uh, for that process. And, and so for me, it's like, my mom didn't have a lot to share with me in terms of resources, in terms of money, but like she had her books, you know, and she had her books and, and you know, we would, would talk about what she was reading, what she was writing. And I think for me, like, you know, it, it all starts with her. So um, with that said, you know, I, I think I, w I was, I was, you know, I was a bit different because like we, we, we obviously were living in poverty, right? But like we had access to books and we had, and I had access to the world so that these books sort of allowed me to, to live in. And I think that's kind of where, where it all, all started for me. And how were you, I guess, as a student? I know you were going back and forth, right? From the East side to Santa Monica area or tell me a little bit about that. Cause I know your mom definitely wanted you to kind of get engrossed with, with the West side, yeah. um, but you were kind of traveling a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I, I was born and raised in, in Huntington Park, right, in southeast L.A. And after the, the L.A. riots, uh, my mom, who was in grad school at, at that point, like she she moved us to the west side. She moved us to Venice, you know, to that area. And, and so, you know, in terms of moving around, like it was it, it was really sort of this like this this, you know, I think entry point into, into a completely different world. The, the west side at that point was really different than growing up in southeast L.A., you know, which was a, a almost entirely like Mexican, Mexican-American community, right? So um, that's kind of what, we, you know, like what happened and because we moved to the West Side, it, it just sort of became a story about my mom and I and like we were sort of removed from the rest of our family and, and then we had to make sense of all that. Dreams of basketball slowly gave way to an earnest interest in people's lives that would ultimately lead Walter to Stanford, Belgium, and the rest of his life. I think what's also sort of unconventional about my story is that like a lot of it also begins with basketball, right? Like I played basketball in high school, I played division one basketball in college, I played professional basketball in Latin America. So for me, like, you know, I never really, you know, I'd be lying if I told you I had ambitions of becoming a writer or ambitions of becoming a journalist or reporter or, you know, doing all the other things that I'm doing now. Um, I think I was really focused on, on you know, like, like any sort of aspiring young basketball player to make the NBA. And that's all I cared about. Like I really, you know, basketball sort of like was, was such a pillar in my life. What I found though, is that like, especially when I moved to, after college, when I moved to, to, to play basketball in Latin America, all over Latin America, I really found that like, I became so much more interested in like culture and like identity and like, questions about race 
when I was living in Mexico and Latin America, you know? So I think, you know, I, I, I sort of really started to, you know, I, I really started to, you know, what happened, right? Like when I was growing up, I was really into writing and books and, and, and the arts. And, you know, I think basketball just consumed so much of my life that, at, that, you know, at some point I started to sort of like tap back into that love for, for writing and reading and sort of art and culture. Um, like I was when I was a kid, right? And so that that sort of happened like in my second, third year playing professional basketball in Latin America. And, you know, like I started to sort of like wherever we, we traveled to Latin America, you know, I would take like a notepad with me and I would just write my observations and I had a camera with me. And I, and I started to be more interested in like, and curious about people and their experiences. And, you know, I, I sort of had to make a choice between that and playing basketball. And that's what I chose. And how going from, you know, journaling, um, when did that, that, that switch flip where you're like, you know, this is going to be a career. This is, this is what I'm doing. Um, and then finding the New York times and, and later on, you know, obviously I want to talk about the Compton Cowboys and, 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 and what resonated with you with that. But, um, let's start with like go, taking on your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, like once I, cause after basketball, like I, I sort of moved back to LA, I was about 26 or so. And I, you know, didn't have a lot going on. You know, I thought about law school and, and I sort of like started to, to study for the LSAT. Never really took it, but I studied for it for a long time. And then I sort of like started working at a mental health hospital for two years, which was a really incredible experience. And then after that, you know, I, I applied to grad school, right? Like I was like, okay, you know, I, I know I'm interested in these things. I know like growing up, like my mom really introduced me to like grad school life and, and, and it seemed really appealing and interesting. So I, I applied to, to Latin American studies programs and I got into a few and I decided on, on, on going to Stanford. And so I, I was, you know, I enrolled in Stanford's uh, Latin American master's program. And I think for me there being at Stanford, you know, was, was sort of really incredible because like, you know, I was introduced to like, you know, so many different thinkers and like writers and professors who, who are making a living out of essentially asking people questions about their lives. Right. So for me, that was really fascinating and that was really interesting. And I sort of thought I wanted to be a professor, right? So like I, I, I graduated from that program and I sort of like, I, you know, the moment actually when I was like, you know what, I, I think I want to do journalism for a bit was like after graduating from Stanford, like I, I moved to Belgium to work on a project, really on a story about multiracial identity in, in Belgium. And, you know, while I was living there, I sort of just like, you know, it was just such a beautiful experience to like, you know, um, Stanford gave me some money, like a, a, a small grant to, to go live and study and research there. And I was like, this is it, you know, this is exactly what I want to do. Like, I want to live in different places in the world and like ask people questions about their lives. And so like, I, when, when, I, when I was in Belgium, I pitched a story to The Guardian, you know, about the research I was working on and they accepted it. And like, that was like the first publication that I'd ever sort of like published one of my pieces. And it was just like such a beautiful, profound moment because I was like, wow, you know, this is how it looks like, you know, asking people questions, you know, taking their photos and like seeing it sort of come to life was a really um, gratifying experience. And it, it kind of put me on this path. So you cut your teeth in Belgium and kind of learned on the fly, you know, yeah, um, yeah, how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because I was like, I, I you know, I'm, I've always been a really, a really, a really good writer. But, you know, learning how to write for like, you know, a 1500 word sort of story is, is different than like writing a, a 12 page essay for like, you know, a, a master's program. You know, so I, I sort of had to learn on the fly. And from there, I just started to, to you know, 
to, to pitch to editors. And, and, and I started to do that. And then I moved back to LA and, and I was a researcher at USC at, at this really cool think tank. And then I sort of did that for a couple of years. I was freelancing for companies like Fusion, for NPR. And then I, um, I enrolled in the uh, PhD program in UCLA in Chicano Studies. And I did that for one year. And then I was still freelancing and still writing and working on, art, on sort of art projects. Like, and, and then um, the New York Times came calling. And, you know, I, I sort of did that. And I left my PhD program for the New York Times, essentially. When they came calling, was that with a story for the Compton Cowboys? Or was that completely something different? Or was that something you pitched to them later on? Or how did that kind of come? Yeah, yeah so I was already a New York Times journalist when I worked on the Compton Cowboys story. The Compton Cowboys are a group of friends who have come together in a Los Angeles neighborhood not normally renowned for ranch living. But there they are, a shining beacon of optimism and refuge. African-American cowboys who ride around Compton, welcoming those who want a respite from the stress of city life. That was the third story I ever worked on for them, was a Compton Cowboys story. And, you know, it, it was really great because, like, five months into working at the New York Times, like, six months in... I was already asking to go on book leave, right? Because that story sort of led to a book deal, which led to like a future film deal. So, you know, a lot, a lot happened in, in a really short time. And as far as that, you know, I kind of wanted to get into, you know, obviously the podcast, you know, I love the episode Ellie. I think that was the one that just resonates really well. Parrots is amazing. They're all really amazing. But as far as the Compton Cowboys um, and your book, what about that particular story it seems like you you immersed yourself a lot in that that particular one. Uh, what was it about it? Yeah, um, I think it was it was a really powerful and beautiful story because it was so personal to me. Um, you know, it was a story that like that, that as a child, like I remember the first time I saw black men on horses in Compton. I was about six years old, right? And, and I think like just remembering the feeling I had, right? Like both a feeling of of pride and of of, of joy, but also a feeling like I had been lied to, you know, a feeling like this, this really powerful history was existing blocks away from my house, but I wasn't learning about it in schools. Right. And, and so I, I thought about all that. And I think for me, it's like, I really, to, I really wanted to like tell their story in a really large way. And um, it resonated with, with, with a lot of people. And just going into a little bit of identity, if you don't mind, um, you know, you were raised um, by a woman from Mexico who came here. And like you said, decided you know i'm gonna go to grad school i'd be a mother and i'm gonna do it all um but what does i mean you know walk us through a little bit about being biracial you know what does that meant to you for your entire life um you know what 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 does that mean yeah i mean to be you know it, it means everything you know like i'm 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 someone who you know was obviously raised in a very mexican way right like i wasn't around my black family at all until i was about 24 or so you know so kind of like a recent thing. Um, but like, it, it's meant so much, you know, and, and I think like growing up in LA, sort of seeing like how this city is inherently a very black and brown city, right? But also a city that, you know, has had a really complicated racial past, you know, like there have been moments in the city's history, you know, still happening at times, right? Where, you know, there are tensions between black and brown folks. So for me growing up as a child of all that and seeing that, I think, you know, like it, it was really a really sort of confusing time, right? Cause like, you know, there isn't a, a sort of guidebook or like, or like, you know, a, a prep program that prepares you for, for dealing with like, 
you know, racial identity, which is already complicated for all of us, right? But it's even more complicated when like you have essentially the world telling you that, that you know, two fundamental pieces of who you are are constantly at odds with one another, you know? So it really sort of creates it, like this chasm, with, 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 it created a chasm within me that like, you know, I really struggle with, you know? And, and, and I think now like I'm, I'm still sort of dealing with these questions about like, identity about race about family about community but i i feel like now i have like more resources to to make sense of it all it sounds like that's a perfect mirror to to the los angeles landscape you know it, it's it's gotten better in recent years obviously but there's always going to be that mm-hmm. if not just conflict but you know um understanding of one another um so it sounds like you're mirroring that i, I guess in your own life yeah you, you know i'm 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 trying to make sense of it all, you know, like I, I can't sit here and tell you that I have it all figured out because I don't, because I think like our, our, our worlds and our personal experiences and our identities are in constant flux. You know, who I am today is, is not who I was yesterday and who I won't be next week. Right. So I'm still trying to figure it out, but I'm a little older now and I understand that like, you know, race and identity is, is so complex and, 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 and nuanced. And, and I think like, Um, It's something that, you know, these are questions I'll be asking myself for the rest of my life. The 1992 Los Angeles riots set a city against itself. From South Central to Koreatown to the West Side, a sprawling city defined by its diversity has a boiling undercurrent of distrust just below the surface. Thompson Hernandez has suffered that dichotomy and reveled in that duality. A son of an African-American man and Mexican immigrant mother. And the podcast, um, how did that come about? And I know it, it's basically a love letter to Los Angeles, and a lot of people would have taken it in the way where it's like, I'm just going to cover this event, this event, and this event, and I'm going to be more of a reporter. Um, and yeah. you being a journalist, that would have been kind of a way to go, but you made yeah. it a very personal story, which I think made it more profound. Um, where did that come from? Um, just talk about a little bit about the podcast. Yeah. Um... California love was, was absolutely, you know, a really complicated love letter to a city that, you know, I was born and raised in, to a city that, like, ha- has really sort of, like, birthed me in so many different ways, right? But I think, you know, the show really, really, really sort of happens, you know, as I'm living away from LA, actually, right? And, like, you know, being a, a New York Times writer and really traveling the world for, for almost three years was, I think, really a really beautiful experience, but, like, it also made me really miss home. And so, like, this idea, you know, you know, I think what's what's really universal about California Love is that, like, so many people who I've gotten in contact with who reach out to me kind of on a daily basis, actually, you know, tell me, like, how much they see themselves in this show, right? Because essentially, it's a show about, like, the ways in which that we all sometimes have to leave home, right? And the ways in which that, you know, or, like, the way or, like, the process by which we come back home. And, and you know, like... You know, it's interesting. I think when we move away from home, the things that sort of sustain us are these like pristine memories of our friends, of our family, of parks, of restaurants, right? You know, at Depayac, right? Like like all, all these sort of different places that we hold really sacred in our minds. And I think something happens when we move back home and we look around and we realize that like so much has changed, right? Like not just internally, but also externally. So for me, like California Love is really a way to make sense of change and a way to make sense of like the ways that both I have changed and the city has changed in the process, right? And I think the show was was extremely personal, you know? And I'm someone who I think over the years, like I've really sort of like 
draw, put the attention on others, right? On people, on communities. And so it, it was a really new experience to sort of like place myself as as the narrator you know as someone who's speaking from really personal experience because like you know as, as you know in journalism like that's not really like the move right it's usually you know to have a sort of like objective stance on, on on something but it's like for me you know I'm also someone like I think objectivity to me um I struggle with that because like my personal views and my personal experiences are so deeply embedded into everything that I do so I think for once in my life I sort of really started to Walter has made a living so far in diving into the world of nonfiction, painting portraits with his words, describing people and places we feel like we've now experienced. In his episode, Parrots, he shows he has chops for the fictional world. While steeped in truth, the podcast episode is a brilliant use of fantastical narrative to drive home a message. And two particular episodes, if you don't mind expounding on, uh, that you do that really well with is Parrots and Ali, obviously. Um, where did the idea for parrots come from? Um, cause you know, d- doing a parable, <laughs> you know, you're, you're teaching us about where these parrots are coming from that we all know about. Um, uh, but then, you know, you know, tying it to, to something completely different. Um, and then Ellie, you know, um, just, you know, I love my mom to death, but having that frank open conversation, you know, and like you said, my best friend, um, it was, it was refreshing, you know, um, so what was that like? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, you know I, I've, I, I love fiction and I love like fantasy. And I think, you know, as someone like I, I've worked in the nonfiction space for, 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 you know, a few years now, for a while now. And, you know, but, but, but my go-to is like magical realism and like fantasy and like surrealism. That's what I love to consume, to read, to watch. And so Paris to me was just an opportunity to, to expand on it, you know, and, and, and in a way that like, it's drawn from nonfiction, right? Like everything in that story is, is, is factual. Like from, you know, where the parrots are from in Northeast Mexico, you know, to, to how they're captured, to the process in which like they, are, they were essentially brought across the border in cages. You know, I think for me, like, you know, so much of parrots is social commentary on our current immigration system, right? It, it's social commentary on the ways in which like LA has over time been founded by, by people essentially who are not from this city, you know, except for like folks who are indigenous to LA. So many of us came here at one point or another, our parents did, our grandparents did, you know? So Parrots is, is, is really a story about, about migration. It's a story about belonging. Um, and it's a story about LA that is rooted in the experience of a green parrot, you know, which, which actually isn't really green, right? Like, like you know, that, there's a part in Green Parrots where, like, I, I, I realized, you know, by, by speaking to this expert on parrots, a professor at Oxford College, that, like, the green parrots that I thought were green, that we all thought were green, really aren't green, right? So, so it's like, I learned so much. And, you know, I mean, if, if, you, li- if you live in Northeast LA, if you live, live anywhere in this area, like, you, you see these parrots all the time. Like, they, they are, depending on how you feel about them, either a nuisance or, like, beautiful, maybe both sometimes. But, like, I've... We've all heard like, you know, short stories about them, right? About where they're from, these like theories about like, you know, some some pet store that, that they escaped from in the 1970s, you know, some Highland Park sort of story. But like, I really wanted to get down to the bottom of it, you know? And I learned so much about these parrots and also just like how resilient these parrots are. And like, you know, these parrots are survivors, essentially, you know? I think they should be praised more. And like, it's just changed my perspective about these parrots 
completely. You know, I now see them and I'm just in awe that they exist. I'm in awe that they've made it here. I'm in awe of their survival, right? Um, and, and I think for, for Ellie, like my mom and I, you know, have a, have a really sort of like close relationship, really complicated relationship, you know, that, that single mother only son relationship, you know, is I think unlike any other, right? Cause you know, as, as, as my mom was growing up, I was growing up, you know, we were each other's sort of like soundboard support system, you know, mentoring each other as we were growing up. So I think that's a conversation I, I, I've been wanting to have for a while, you know, and my next book actually is, is, is a memoir about my mom and I, you know, a story about like identity and about my mom and about our experiences in LA. But um, yeah, it's, it's a story that I also knew would resonate with so many people, right? Because like so many of our moms, especially like, you know, the, those who are first generation Mexican immigrants, like have my mom's story. So, so when, I was, when I was like producing and writing that story, I, I was really interested in, in, in having a conversation that I think so many of us would, would like to have with our parents. And I think because of that, you know, it really resonated with a lot of people. And it was just so honest, you know, it was an honest conversation. Like it wasn't one that, that sort of like meant to um, like over magnify like hardship or struggle. It, it, it wasn't about that, you know, it, it was about sort of like creating an honest depiction of my mom's life and my life. And I was really proud of my mom for opening up like that. Yeah, I mean, exactly like you said, I, I, I know where my mom comes from, you know, we have a relationship, but to sit down and just talk as equals for a little bit and find out, you know, have that empathy for her life. Um, it's a conversation that doesn't often happen, but it needs to, you know, in so many families. There's a relative dearth of writers of color. Take a look at any masthead around the online circle, and you'll realize that it's far from representative of the country at large. But there are things that can be done to rectify that. One of the last things I want to talk about is representation. Um, I find, especially in the sports world, there's a lack of people of color, uh, writers of color. Um, Latinos, you just don't see them as often, um, you know, carrying a lot of stories throughout major publications. Um, why is that? Maybe, why do you think? Um, what, what can we do to kind of incorporate and, and make that landscape more diverse? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, can we, I think we can do a few things, right? I think, you know, I think my experience was a bit different, right? Because although my mom and I lived in poverty, you know, like my mom worked three, three to four jobs sometimes. Like we didn't have a lot of money. I think my mom was also in, in a PhD program, right? Which was worlds removed from what my friends' moms were doing. You know, my best friend's moms were, you know, working in kitchens, cleaning people's houses, you know, they were doing all those different things. So my experience was different. You know, my experience was different because like I was exposed to that and to my mom's world at a really early age. I I could see that 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 brown people, right, could also be in PhD programs. Like most of my mom's friends were, you know, Chicanas as well, just like my mom. And so I was like, wow, you know, it's not just white people who have access to PhD programs, to writing, to, to doing those sort of things. It's also people who look like us and look like me. So I think for me, it's all about exposure, right? Like if if young black and brown kids in the hood don't know or don't see people who look like them doing things like writing, like documenting, like reporting, 
like, you know, working in media, then it sort of becomes this abstraction, right? And, you know, and, and so for me, it's all about making things like tactile and tangible, right? And, and so for me, you know, it's, it's just all about exposure, right? It's about exposure, but also supporting that with like actual resources and like putting young folks on tracks, right? Where, where like, you know, being a writer for the New York Times is, 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 is a possibility, right? You know, I, you know, you know, I often feel like a unicorn, right? Like I feel like one of the lucky ones because like so much of my life has been dictated, of course, by my hard work, 100%, you know, but a lot of it also is, is, is left up to chance. And so for me, it's like the fact that I'm here having this conversation with you, you know, I've been in so many positions in my life, you know, life-threatening, you know, experiences or like if something went wrong, you know, it could have gone really bad. I just feel like we need to limit those, those experiences for our young people and, you know, like have more safety nets so that if we mess up along the way, which we will, because we're humans, right? That, you know, there's like a safety net there to, to support people who look like us, right? So, so I think it's, it is about exposure, but it's also about like resources, you know, like we're, we're often tracked, right? Like we're often told in by our, our middle school counselors, and high school counselors that, you know, we, we should go a certain direction in the life, you know, that we shouldn't be this because we're going to fail. And I think like, that's a narrative that my mom experienced when she was in high school. You know, what, what my mom was told in high school by her college counselor was the same thing that I was told as a young kid. So like, it, it's, it's a generational thing. And I think like young brown children, young black children are, are, are consuming these narratives every single day. But when they see people like me, for example, right? Someone who, who sounds like them, right? Someone who looks like them, someone who dresses like them, what we do like, becomes less of an abstraction and it becomes something real and possible. Jay Mendoza grew up the class clown. With two children and hundreds of thousands of followers on social media, the class is decidedly bigger now. While he makes humor look easy, there is a difficulty to finding the joke, especially during a pandemic when alone time with your thoughts is a luxury you don't always get. Man, things have been a little crazy. Uh, trying to, you know, be a parent trying to be a comedian, trying to be uh, a dad, you know, trying to, like, you got to put your hands in every direction nowadays because everybody's in the same household trying to accomplish one thing, you know? You're talking about household. I mean, I got a, I got a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and it's just, like, it's insane, man. It's just crazy how, like you said, yeah, how is it, like, working from home? I mean, I know you're, you're out and about and stuff, but, like. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean. It's, it's been interesting, you know, like, um, I never, I was kind of already set up to work from home because I always shoot my videos from home. So, but it was me and my brother and, you know, I didn't have any, anybody else around. So it was full focus, full, you know, like, let's get to shoot, let's get it on and let's finish. And now it's like, I'm starting a video. Daddy, can you give me leche? Dad, you play Roblox? with me dad can you push me in the maca in the back you know we have a, a hammock um and it's just like oh and my wife 
hey Jay, he goes, oh, they're, you know, they're looking for you here. Hey, what do you think about this on Amazon? I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, dude, I, it's one of the hardest things. And, and to be creative, you literally have to be in your own bubble. Once you start a creative process and you kind of get sidetracked, if that's like a distraction of your phone or if you look on the computer, whatever you do, like your creative is gone. So to get right back in that bubble, man, it's one of the hardest things you could ever do, man. So it's 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 been a work in progress and just trying to push forward every day. I've always been the class clown. Um, and for some reason, I was never shy. I have five brothers. So I was the middle child who always got like, you know, got beat up by my brothers, told me I was acting dumb, stopped acting stupid, you know? And, and for some reason, I never let that get to me. And I just always try to entertain people. I like, you know, I like making people laugh. And I played sports my whole team, my whole life. So since the age of eight, I played football. So I played Pop Warner. I grew up in Venice. So I was on the Bulldogs. Um, and then I was on flag football teams on my, uh, at my middle school. And then when I was in middle school, uh, they had a, a, what's his name? I can't think of his name right now. Uh, I'm blanking out. Uh, the USC quarterback. Uh, he played with Reggie Bush. Uh, oh, uh, was this Leinert at that time? Yeah, Matt Leinert, yep. Okay, there so we Matt go. Leinert, Matt Leinert had a, had a, a football league and uh, he had a Pop Warner league where he, they used to take us in and play versus different other areas. Um, and that was, dude, that football was my first love. I, I always thought I was going to make, I was going to be the first Mexican to ever make it to the NFL, you know? <laughs> uh, and that was, that was my vision, man. And, and I played and I played and uh, I got, it got me all the way to junior college. Uh, and junior college, I had to realize, you know, I could, I wasn't, you know, jumping or, I wasn't dunking and I wasn't like running a four, three. I wasn't, dude, I was running a forever, you know? So, um, I just, I just, you came to realization. All right, it's time to hang them up. So, you know, being, that's where funny kid became a thing, you know, where I just, I always love making people smile. And I feel like I just, I just feel like I always brought joy to people's faces. And for some reason, people love being around me and, I don't know. I just, it just, it was just a natural thing for me growing up. Jay Mendoza discovered pretty early in life the value of finding a really good mentor. It just so happens that his mentor, a guy that would show him the difference between good content and bad content, was the creator of the most popular channel in YouTube history, Epic Rap Battles of History. And, and take me, you know, you, you're after, after JC, and, it, and, and if I'm not mistaken, you got started with Vine, right? I got started with Vine, but prior to Vine, I was working with uh, a guy named Peter Shukoff, who his YouTube channel is uh, Epic Rap Battles of History, gotcha. and they take two historic figures and they battle on green screen and then they put them in their worlds. Um, he taught me the internet, man. He, this guy, um, he hated social media. He only liked creating videos on YouTube. That was his whole thing. I just want to create videos, and that's all I want to do. So when he hired me, he was like, hey, man, like, I don't like to run my social media. I don't like to run my errands. I don't like to pay my bills. I only like to create videos. And he hired me, and I did that for four years. And in those four years, you know, like, I started developing more as far as 
He taught me how to edit. He taught me how to, what was good content versus bad content. He taught me how to be picky and pick and choose what I should post. And he, I, he taught me the first time I ever saw like interactions between fans and content, you know, like I had never seen so many tweets at, at someone. I had never seen so many comments at someone, so many likes. And that blew me away, man. And I was like, well, nobody's, there's no Hispanic person doing this Mm -hmm. to this day. There's not many Hispanic people creating content on the internet. There's very few. And it it, it changed my life. Um, And I knew that, you know, that there's such a large audience within the Hispanic community. And when I used to tell people about this, I was like, man, I want to create content for the Hispanic community. And people used to tell me like, why do you want to create? Why, why just Hispanic? I was like, because there's a big void, but people didn't understand how big of an audience that was. Um, and so one day after four years that I was with him, I had already jumped on Vine. I was starting to gain uh, a big following. Uh, I think I had gotten to like 100,000 when I was still working for him. And one day he showed up and he was like, yo, Jay. I was like, what's up, man? He was like, I have a check for you. I was like, a check for me? What do you mean? He goes, here's $5,000. He goes, I think it's time for you to go. I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, I'm not going to work here anymore? Like, what, what do you mean? He goes, yeah. He goes, I think it's time for you to become a creator and create your own content. Here's 5000 Go buy yourself a camera and whatever you need for editing software. And it's and it's on you. And, dude, that, it was wow. like he literally pushed me off the bird's nest. Literally pushed me off the bird's nest, man. And to this day, man, I, it's I've been able to create content. I've been able to meet sports players like Yasiel Puig, who I consistently always talk to. Um, I've been able to throw out the first pitch at Dodger Stadium. Um, I work with the Rams. um, And it's been an exciting journey as far as combining comedy with sports. No, that's fantastic. And just to have, you know, because I I remember Epic Rap Battles, like that was was huge, man. Um, Dude, I I was on that team when they – the second video that ever came out, dude. That's crazy. And if you look, and if you go look in the credits, you'll find me. Epic rap battles in history, man. So what were you doing I was there for four years? When, with that, the four years, oh, he, you everything. He, he hired. He hired. Hey, I was doing everything. I was jack of all trades. But he first hired me as a production assistant. Okay. So I was on set, and then I was also his assistant, where I literally just rode with him everywhere he went, and he just trusted me to. Whatever Jay says, follow it. And right. and he just trusted me that much, man. And he was just one of those people that just loved creating. He just didn't want to do anything else. I mean, it's just good to have people, you know, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't, you know, because you're, you know, Hispanic and giving you that opportunity, but just someone to give an opportunity for someone coming up, regardless of skin color or whatever. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and I know, and I know, you know, we're in a time where, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, minorities, us as minorities haven't been given that many uh, opportunities. But, you know, Peter is a, you know, he's a white man. And he blessed me, man. He taught me something that most people don't get educated or learn because they're not in specific, you know, situations. And Peter was one of them that actually, man, he, he, he taught me the game. That's what they call it, right? He taught me the whole game about social and creating content. And 
this was the beginning stages of YouTube where Vine had just gotten started. Instagram didn't even have video. They just had pictures. Um, you know, so now you got the TikToks. Now you got the Reels. You got you know, it's so much that goes into it, but it's just I feel like now that I've been doing it so long for seven years now, it's uh, it's just like a full, just a, a big circle turning because now you got TikTok, which is short format, Reels, which is 15 seconds, which I come from six seconds, you know, and then Instagram launched 15 seconds. And then they wanted to go IGTV, create long videos, and now they're back to short format. So it's just one big circle, I think, that just keeps turning, you know? Because I feel like comedy, stand-up comedy, and internet comedy, um, it's two different worlds. Um, I've had, I've worked with, you know, like, um, different comedians who want to do, create content. And it's funny to see them because it's kind of like they don't be, they're like not as funny. They're nervous. They've never really been in front of camera. So as a content creator, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm funny, but there's way more that goes into it. I, now I'm now, I got to be a director. I got to be a writer. I got to produce my, I got to, you know, like, I got to see it in my head as editing, you know? So it's like, there's so many steps to it that it's not just about being funny anymore. Um, so you kind of have to be well-rounded in all areas of production. It looks like fun, probably because it is. But creating comedy online can be a grind. If Jay is tired, he has to be funny. If he's hungry, he has to be funny. If he isn't feeling funny, he has to be funny. His job is to be on each and every day. But it's definitely, it's a different animal. But I think it, it's almost, it's harder with what you do because you have to, a lot of times you're doing it by yourself and you have to exude this kind of charisma um, immediately within 15 seconds, even if it's a minute, you know, yeah, um, yeah. you have to sell something yeah. so quickly. Um, oh yeah. They do. They say you got, you got five seconds to make some, somebody get attached to the video or they're gone. Man. And you're only as good as your last video, man. So you gotta be like a machine pumping out videos, man. And sometimes, you know, like I don't, I don't feel funny every day. Sometimes I just want right. to be Jay Mendoza and I want to be normal and, hang out with my friends and um it's funny because like when i meet fans in person they're like oh i saw you here but i don't know you look like you were mad and i was like <laughs> what do you mean like i i mean i i don't get it am i supposed to walk around with a face that is just goofy 24 7 you know like um but it, it's it's you know it, it's a lot of it is um to these jokes you know on the internet you you kind of have to hype it up you know you have to uh make it bigger than what it really is um you have to exaggerate it you have to you know uh act a lot of stuff outwards it's bigger than what it really is to make the joke and to sell the joke um so it's, it's definitely different from stand-up um and imagine you got to learn how to work a camera you got to learn how to work editing software Pay attention in school, kids. Who knew the format of an essay could come in hand, even in comedy? You got to learn where I, I always look at comedy as an essay. One of my favorite subjects was always English. And uh, I was kind of blessed to be able to be taught how to really write a good essay. And I'll, I'll never forget. It's an intro, body, and a conclusion. Mm -hmm. So my joke is always intro of What's my joke about? Is it going to be about peanut butter and jelly? Okay, I'm talking about peanut butter and jelly. 
Now in the body, I'm talking about the bread that I'm using. And in my in my conclusion, I gotta come back to the peanut butter and jelly of what my whole joke was about. So my my conclusion is always my punch to my videos. Um, and that's how I try to explain people my comedy where it's it's an essay, it's an intro body and conclusion. So intro body and punch, you know? That's so you're in and you're out. And and that's that's my comedic timing, you know. No, and it works. It works so well in that medium. Um, is there anything, I mean, do you ever consider like longer form or you got anything, kind of ideas going in that route? Yeah, I, I'll do longer form. I mean, if it was up to me, I, I want to transition over to to uh, traditional. Um, you know, I would love to do, I, people always say, I love to do movies, but now we're not living in a time of like real movies. Now it's more like, Netflix movies and right. you know it's more digital uh Netflix shows Hulu shows so I mean that's kind of the direction I would love to go um but I I still think we're still living in an era where like it's slowly changing it's taken seven years to actually respect the creators um as far as you know they like a lot of actors were like it's not really acting you know and then now you go into to a uh, um audition and the first question is do you have a social media following so i'm seeing it drastically change um but that's kind of where i would love to end up uh in traditional and and that's you know i think my next step is to really focus on acting you know um but improv is really where my world is and i love it until this day i don't think i'll ever want to go away from digital and even with this whole pandemic i've seen Artists now have to create content. Actors are creating content. Why? Because there's no filming or productions going on. So it goes back to the world that I'm already in. So it's like, am I in the right place to just keep going? Or, you know, do I ever really transition? Or does everybody transition to the world I'm in? From blockbuster movies to the marquee outside the local comedy club, there's something missing, and that's a representative number of Latino performers, and it's time that changed. There's kind of a complete, you know, just a, a, a lack of representation for Latinos in Hollywood. And in, like you said, still yeah. online. I mean, you know, you're kind of forging a path, but even, you know, since you started to now, there's still not that many you know slowly but surely you get more podcasts and people um on social media and doing things um why do you think that is do you think it's cultural like we just don't have a lot of people that are up there you know either you know that want to do something like that or that you know even in stand-up comedy i I noticed that there's a dearth of of latinos i I think a lot of it has to do with um the way we were raised as far as like you know i remember my mom and dad used to tell me like if you get a good job, take care of it. Cuidalo, you know, like, you never know, like, you might be able to get a good job like that, where I was kind of always the opposite, where I was like, if they fired me, I was always, I'm going to find something else. And uh, I went through a lot of jobs, you know, like, I, I I always wanted to try new things. Till this day, I, I, I'm a, I could be a scatterbrain, and I always want to learn something different. I always want to be stick my nose in something that maybe I don't deserve to be poking my nose in there, but 
I learned something, you know? So I think a lot of it has to do with fear. A lot of it has to do with, um, when I started, you know, a lot of people try to put you down as far as, oh, the Mexican guy, oh, the, the Latino guy, oh, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of stereotypical things that people try to put you down as, or, you know, they don't let you be a part of it because they just feel like, you know, you got to work your way up, which is like, okay, but so it's just being persistent. Um, I've always told myself, I kind of just, I stay in my lane. You know, I, I always believed in my lane. And I, I think now I got to a point where I could change lanes and try different stuff. And if not, I could always go back to the same lane I was, and that's never going to go away. And I always truly believe in it. But I think a lot of it has to do with just insecurities and fears, man. And, um, but I think we're still now starting to live in a generation that that's changing. It's, it's changing slowly. Even with people going to universities now, you see all these kids that are now graduating from college with 4.0s that are come from Latino first generation families. So I think it's slowly changing and, but yeah, it's taken a long time and I'm fortunate to be a pioneer in, in, in this medium and, and digital format and I just keep going, you know? And I, I definitely want to get to, to the talk about some sneakers in, in just a second, but, um, you know, I guess that, that next generation coming up, you know, people that have zero followers right now, you know, how hard is it to get to that 100,000, 400,000, like to have that many people follow you, um, you know, not on a weekly basis, like as a TV show. No, they're, they're following you every single time you post something like, um, yeah. how hard is it yeah. to build that kind of thing? What, what kind of tips would you give someone, you know, uh, you know, another, you know, smaller, younger person of color that just wants to start out right now? Like I tell everybody, man, I even, I mean, even to this day, I have this issue where not every video is going to go viral. Right. One video could touch one person. One video could touch the next person. And then the next video could touch everybody. Right. So sometimes it took me two years just to get paid mm -hmm. from any type of company. Two years where when I first started, it was, um, the, the, the Hispanic, um, market was uh the lowest paid first there was the general then there was african-american and then there was the hispanic creators we got paid last <laughs> and their budgets were literally the dead bottom dude but i always told myself like i knew and i believed that this was going to be the new world and the new age how everything was going to work and i just kept going and, and all you could truly do if you truly believe in what you literally love is all you could do is keep going. And I can tell everybody like, yo, you can't go viral every video. It's even if, sometimes the most video that I think to this day, oh, this is going viral. It doesn't go viral. And the videos that I think, oh, this is funny. It's the funniest videos to them, which to this day, I don't get it. You know, like I just had the other day, I posted a video where um, I tell people when you buy a, a charger at the Dollar Tree uh, and it's me plugging it in and then right when I put it into my phone, it cuts and you see a skeleton fly away. Um, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> you know, he got electrocuted, now he's dead. But I, I didn't think that was going to explode. And now I got all these pages. Hey, can I reshare this? Hey. And I got all these new people. I got, I had Gabby Douglas, the Olympian, comment on wow. my video, which is like, what? You know, like, so it's, it's like you get all these people that you never think 
are ever going to see you. Um, and, and, you know, now I'm on TikTok. You know, I'm at a million followers on there. And I didn't think I was going to build another platform, you know, like when I had built Vine, I had built Instagram, I had built Facebook. Now you guys throw me. So it's like, it's like being in a ring and you get punched and punched and punched and you're just taking these punches, but you're, you're punching back. And as long as you're always punching back, you're going to be in the fight. And I just tell everybody, if you truly love what you do, you just keep going. Jay Mendoza has a sick collection of sneakers, and if you admire his drip, then you aren't alone. Jay was pouring over sneaker magazines back in the 90s, window shopping for when the time was right and his dream came true. You know, and we, we got to get to the sneakers. Um, you know, I know you have a, an affection for them. Um, before we, you know, let's just kick it off with, you know, how many do you have? And like, wh- where does it come from? You know, your, your affection for, for sneakers and, and uh, um, yeah, where did you start picking those up? I mean, I got about 80 pairs up to now, um, from Jordans to Yeezys to um, Balenciagas. You know, I I got all kinds of stuff. Uh, do I need all those shoes? No, but it's it's it kind of, I think it comes from just growing up and watching the NBA, um, seeing my favorite heroes like Kobe, um, and seeing all these shoes. You know, like it was just getting the Slam magazine. I used to, dude, I still have Slam yeah, magazines from when right. I was in middle school. You know, and then I used to get East Bay. Remember East Bay? When he, uh, yes, yes. All the shoes and everything used to come in the magazine. So, and I remember I was I was a kid, so all I could do was window shop because my parents couldn't afford that. I had five brothers. So the only thing I close to that I could get to a real Jordan shoe was getting smaller size, bro. Like, I used to get a smaller size, even if it, my toes were like literally in half inside the shoe. But it was about showing up to school and be like, man, those are some amazing kicks, dope kicks, whatever you want to say. Um, I didn't care. I had Grant Hills. I had Jordans. And I remember when I was like size seven, I used to wear a size six because once it got to size seven, the price went up. And my parents couldn't afford that. So – Man, I did what I had to do. So now that I'm older, I'm like, man, I, I've worked hard to get where I'm at. And now I'm living a dream. And so I buy shoes, man. I, I love shoes. Uh, is it always the smartest investment? Probably not. But I feel like I deserve it. And, and I have an affection for shoes. And that smell, that fresh smell when you smell inside a shoe. And, man, kicks. I feel like kicks define who who a person is. Like, if you got dirty shoes, man, like, yo, like, kind of says a lot about you. Uh, so I just like to wear brand new shoes, and that's just, just who I am. So so your your kicks are clean then. So how often are you changing them? Are you, are you do, are these, like, um, special occasions? Like, you know, we're going to church on Sundays. I have my special, my Yeezys out. I have my special occasions. Then I have my everydayers. Like, right now I have some Jordan 11s on that. I'm looking at them, and. I probably shouldn't be wearing them anymore, but I've broke them in that, you know, now I can hoop in them. You know, I can go play some basketball. Um, but I, I, I switch them in and out, and I'm always cleaning my shoes. I I have, like, this passion for cleaning my shoes because it's, it's peaceful. I don't know. I just sit there, I clean my shoes, and I, put, I bump some music, and I'm at peace. Jay is a big-time sports fan repping the Lakers, but he'll tell you that his first love is the sport itself even if that means the other team 
is on TV. I know LeBron was saying that he feels like this season has been three seasons. Yeah. You know, um, for them was the passing of Kobe. You know, they had to deal with that. And then, you know, they, they, they go through Black Lives Matter. And now they got to go through the bubble. It's like, man, like how much can you possibly deal with and be? It goes back to the same thing of what I was saying. Where, see, this is my conclusion. Where I was saying, uh, it's once you get in that creative zone, and once you're out, it's like, how do you refocus? And I think for them, it's the same thing. Like, right. there's so many distractions, there's so many things going on. It's 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 a hard job to focus on what is important, but there's so many other things that are important in the world too that we're all just pushing forward every day. And I know you grew up in Venice, so I'm guessing you are a Clippers fan? <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> I, to, be, I, 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 to be honest, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll be honest. I'm a diehard Laker fan, but I never hated the Clippers. Um, I, I remember watching Eric No, nah, man, I used to – because what happens is that um, you know, growing up in a Hispanic household, uh, my parents used to go to work every day. There was too many of us in the house. And if we weren't outside, we were watching basketball games. So if the Laker games weren't playing on KCAL 9, um, the Clippers were playing. And I used to watch, like, you know, Eric Piakowski, uh, Olawa Candy, yeah. um, Elton Brand, um, you know, all the uh, Quentin Richardson, Darius Miles. Man, they used to be fun to watch. Um, so for me, it was just like, it's two LA teams. I'm from LA. Do you go for the Rams or the Chargers? I would never go for the Chargers. <laughs> but, you know, I go for the Rams. Um, and growing up with, with the NFL, I never really had a team. I, I used to like Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin. You know, I wasn't really a Cowboy fan, but I, I like more players, you know. Um, and I know my, my family used to be like Raider fans and Rams fans and when the Rams came back to LA, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to just pick a team now. And I've been sticking with the Rams and I got to go to the Super Bowl with Nike. Mm -hmm. um, even though we lost and yeah. we put up three points, you know, it was like one of the worst Super Bowl games ever. Um, but, you know, it was, it, I, it, it was an excitement. And as a Latino kid that comes from Venice to know that I'm in Atlanta at, at a Super Bowl, what? Like, it's just, I, I, it's nothing I could have ever dreamed about. Um, so when I get these opportunities from throwing out the first pitch at Dodger Stadium, like, I, 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 it's hard to really dream of that when we come from certain pockets of L.A. where, you know, it, it's just, it was never, if I told somebody this, it's it just, everybody would tell me, yeah, right. Like, you know, like, yeah, right. You know, like, it's just. No one would ever believe what I've been able to accomplish, and I'm thankful. And, and it all comes back to just believing and working hard and keep going. Many of you remember summer vacation, going to bed late, waking up late. Responsibilities were whittled down to their minimum. It was glorious. Not for Jay Mendoza. When school ended, work began. Lastly, I just want to talk about, you know, like you said, your parents, you know, they worked yeah. hard, um, five kids at home, you know, or you said five or six, were you the sixth? I five, yeah. Okay. I you're was the fifth. fifth. I was the fifth, yeah. And so, you know, what, what did they do for a living and what kind of, you know, um, you know, what, 
what would what do they hope for you? Because I know you know you you know now that you're you know doing comedy, um, you know coming from a Latino household myself, you know what was it like you know um, growing up and and what what did they have planned for you? I guess. <laughs> I mean, my my dad just always told me to. I mean, my dad was a was a gardener, so he worked for a landscaping company. Okay. Um, so I never had summers. I never had weekends. I never had any type of vacation because it was like, yo, right. we got to go work. And I was like, what? Like, I'm on <laughs> summer vacation. Dude, I don't care if you're on summer vacation. You're going to work. You don't even pay me. We're like, guess what? I got a roof over your head and you get to eat. And you got a bed to lay on. And it was like, damn, like, you couldn't really complain, you know? Um, my mom was a, is, a, is a housekeeper. My dad passed away five years ago. Uh, my mom is um, is a housekeeper till this day, you know. She she does her thing because she can't sit still. Right. But she was also a, she was also an entrepreneur. She used to do yard sales for every 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 uh, Valentine's Day. She used to make her little fake flowers or or real flowers so she could sell okay. at the corner at the gas station. You know, like she always found how to make money. Uh, so they 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 both were just hustlers, man. They 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 worked and they never complained. And they, you know, that we always had a clean clothes. We had shoes on our feet and, and, and it was never a thing of like complaining or, or they taught me how to, my work ethic. To this day, I, I still cut my own grass at my house. Um, and, and, and it's, it, it brings me happiness and joy because I'm like, man, this is what my dad taught me how to do. Um, so yeah, man, my, my parents were hardworking people and, now when they see me, like my dad saw me when I was starting to blow up and he he kinda he kinda would just laugh at he would cause he would say puras payasadas. Um <laughs> and my mom to this day, she she always texts me like, Junior, did you really do this? Because everybody calls me Junior. Um and uh, my mom just she dies, but she always told me since you were a kid, like I told her, I remember when I told her, I told her since the age of six. I was like, my mom would be famous. And she says, she's like, oh, you're crazy. She's like, no, mom, I'm going to be famous. Like, I'm going to, everybody's going to know me and people are going to want to be around me and I'm going to buy you a house. I'm gonna, I, I said all these things as a kid. Um, and she tells me how, like, I was just always determined. And she goes, you were always a kid that was a little bit outside of the box. You know, like, I just, I just never had fears and I always wanted to make, people laugh so to this day I, I just make people laugh the Fuego podcast is edited by Dylan Wren I'm your host Gabe Zaldivar if you like the show, you can help support it in a tremendous way by liking, following, and subscribing across your favorite streaming services. Give a comment or a five-star rating. With your support, you're helping give some of sport's greatest stories the spotlight they deserve. Next week, we do just that, pulling back the curtain on a rather uplifting sports story you might not know about. 